Thank you, guys. Thank you for the choir, Benjamin, and all of our ministries coming up. I want to welcome those of you that are visiting. Be in prayer as we anticipate uh, the holidays now. We have a lot of visitors coming. We're glad for all of you that have visited with us, but we're expecting a lot more visitors, and so be inviting your friends, and we're praying that many people will come to know the Lord. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5, and if you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extras. If you're visiting, just raise your hand. We'll be glad. I want to blow? Yeah, just in case. That's a good idea. Thanks. So real quick, um, I'm going to tell you a story, though. This is just, if you'll be praying for our children's choir, they're going to be singing next week, and many people will come and visit, and so their director, Kelly Studley, texted me this week, and she said, hey, listen, I just need to let you know something. Um, Wednesday night, with about 50 kids, my little granddaughter, Peyton, who's seven, just a tiny, frail little thing. Many of you have prayed for her with an illness that she has. So Kelly said to the children, we need to especially pray next week because many unbelievers are going to come to hear you sing. Pray that the Lord will open their hearts to be saved. She said, and they're going to listen to you and your message because you're adorable, way more adorable than Pastor Tom. <laughs> so the kids all laugh, right? My granddaughter, my little granddaughter, up to sixth grader, Kelly says, she stands up and she goes, hey, that's my pop. And he is adorable. And I'm telling on you. I was like, yes. So I just changed the will. She gets everything. Just pray for her, her eyesight as she, as she grows. Anyway, I want to welcome all of you and invite you to join us as we study the Bible. We're, we're studying the book of James right now. We're actually at the end of the book. We're on the last passage, and we're talking about prayer, which is an awesome, awesome privilege. There are so many things that God does for his children, but one of them is to give us this great privilege of prayer. There are so many gifts that we, we receive when we're in Christ. The Bible says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, gift of the Holy Spirit, but one of them is the privilege of prayer, access to God on a regular basis through prayer. In fact, I remember the first prayer that God heard in my life that I know of was when I was 17 years old. I didn't know the Lord. I wasn't following the Lord, but my dad had a heart attack, and they told us he wouldn't live. He was being kept alive on machines, and they said the chances of him living are one in 100, and I stood in his room. I remember this like it was yesterday. Dear God, I wept. I said, God, I don't know who you are, but if you heal my dad, I promise I'll turn and follow you. And the nurse came in right after that, and she said, hey, that light blinking on the machine, how long has that been blinking? I said, I don't know. She said, that means your dad has begun to breathe manually. And man, that just struck me that God heard me. And actually, my dad did get healed. He lived for about five more years. Now, I didn't the next day surrender to Christ because I didn't know the gospel. I didn't even know how to follow the Lord. And, and God surely didn't do, ooh, if you'll do that, I'll do this. But but I do remember, like, that was God's first meeting of me and answering of my prayers. And so I want you to think about your own prayer life. Some of you pray on occasion. Some of you don't pray at all, maybe pray at meals. Some of you are passionate in prayer. But one of the things that Christians can learn is that our prayers can always improve and grow. And we can pray better. We can pray and see more prayers answered. And we can be more excited about prayer. And we can be a praying church. But I think, honestly, if, if, if the Lord Jesus walked among our church and he brought his report card, and he does that. In, in Revelation chapter 2, it says he walks among the churches. And you can read chapter 2 and 3, he evaluates seven churches, and he gives them good grades on some things, 
says to the church at Ephesus, I praise you that you work hard and that you don't tolerate evil and you're solid in your doctrines. He said, but, but here's something you need to work on. You left your first love. I think the Lord Jesus would commend us for many things, but I don't think we'd get an A for prayer. I don't think we would get an A for, for corporate prayer. I, I just feel as though we need to be challenged in prayer. And part of that is American culture. American Christianity is very, very weak. Not everywhere, but for the most part. You look around, we take our cues of prayer from the world instead of from the word. And so this morning, I, I pray that God will speak to each of us. And the most dangerous thing about prayer is when it's all said and done, there's usually a lot more said than done. So the deal here is that this needs to be applied, not just like, whoa, that was interesting or a good reminder. So let's, let's pray that God will teach us to pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the spirit to open our eyes and challenge and encourage us. May we all, as a corporate church and as individuals, be changed in our prayer life through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. James is not writing everything there is to know about prayer. He has challenged Christians deeply to say, if you say you have real, genuine faith in Christ, this is what it's going to look like in your speech, in your sharing of your resources, in the way that you interact with other people, in your partiality, in your worldliness, in your finances. But at the end of the book, he recognizes that we're all going through different things in life. And so he says, look, let me close by, by bringing it all together with a discussion about prayer. And so interestingly, the first thing he does is he calls for individual prayer and singing. And I want you to look with me in verse 13. Individual prayer and singing. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praises. I like to think of life sometimes. It's a journey but, but picture yourself on a surfboard. Sometimes you're on the board, riding the wave, and sometimes you're tumbling in the, in the, in the surf, okay? So the word suffering here is, is a word that has to do with hardships of, of many kinds. It's used often in the Old Testament of the prophets going through hard times. When Paul was in prison, he said, I suffer all things, endure these things for the sake of the elect. So this morning, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, I, I suspect that there would be well over half of you would say, Right now, times are tough. Either my marriage, we've got someone in our family who's sick, someone with depression, someone with financial needs, someone struggling with one of their kids. Life, life is, is really complex, and, and, and it's just part of life to suffer and to endure hardships. But the Bible gives us this great hope. Don't be a stoic and just suck it up and take it on the chin. Pray. If anyone is suffering, let him pray. And we're going we're gonna to talk more about that. But then he says this, however, if anyone's cheerful, let him sing praises. What does he mean by cheerful here? Because there's a difference between having joy and rejoicing. Sometimes we experience a deep sense of wellness and we're just cheerful. Now, some of you by nature, I know unbelievers that are cheerful people, you know. Some of you wake up just happy. Others of you are like, get out of my way until I get my coffee, right? So, but, but from a Christian standpoint, the Bible is telling us when, when you're in a good place in your life, don't just 
take that for granted, but rather truly learn how to praise God and sing and give gratitude. I think some people, the only time they ever talk to God is when they're in trouble, right? So he's inviting us to sing praises. Be reminded that in times of happiness, it's our privilege to acknowledge God and to praise him. Now, it's interesting that he calls for us to sing. Christians are supposed to be singing people. And I get it. Some of you, you're like, well, you know, that's just not my personality. This word solo, originally it meant to pluck on a harp. It's related to the word from which we get the word psalms, but it has the idea of, of singing spiritual songs to the Lord, singing praise to God. Now, for some of you, this is weird because you're just like, well, I don't really do that, okay? So if you don't ever sing when you're by yourself, sing praise to God, this is what you're doing. And this is what you should be doing, okay? So, so it, first of all, people are like, well, that seems weird. Well, it's not weird. Most people sing. I see people all the time, right, in their car, right? I don't know what they're doing, but I know they're singing, right? I don't know what they're singing. I often wonder, are they praising God? Or are they just getting on their 70s classic rock? I don't know, but we sing. Now, if, if you don't sing songs to the Lord... This isn't about personality. This isn't about ability. This is about availability and praying that the Holy Spirit will put songs in your heart. So in Ephesians 5, it says, don't be drunk with wine. Drunk people often sing karaoke night, right? He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The Holy Spirit wants to put a song in our hearts. In my heart there rings a melody. And some of you are going, that's so weird. I get it. That sounds like something you hear at a skating rink. It doesn't have to be your grandparents' music, but it needs to be Christ-centered music. And when you sing, Paul says, sing with your spirit and sing with your mind also. So much of Christian singing is mindless singing. It's mind-numbing singing because often what we sing is not even biblical. Not every song that comes on the radio is a good song, okay? So think about what you're singing. And we all fall into a lapse. I, I love to sing. My kids, I've, I've been singing hymns to them since they were little, and now I sing it to my grandkids, and we sing. And I remember one time I was riding along with my girls in our van, and um, the song from the Titanic came on. Near, far, where, And the thing is, songs can touch your emotions, and that song was moving, right? And so it's touching my emotions. Next thing I know, I got my hand up. Near, far. And my daughters go, Dad, you're worshiping. And I go, ooh, ooh, ooh. No, I wasn't. Yeah. So, so there I was doing this while I'm singing about, you know, two people hanging over the front of a boat. Stop it. So, so but, but I want you to think about that. If you don't have any songs, right, there are so many ways to get exposed to Christian music. You may have a, a, um, a preference. Maybe you like, you like country music, and so you're like, where I come from is cornbread and chicken. You can, you know, that guy's got some Christian songs. I'm not even saying he's a Christian, but get some Christian songs and listen to them and sing them. And, and even if you're like, oh, I don't feel like singing, you're not singing for yourself. You're singing praise to the Lord. The Bible says it's a good thing to give thanks to the Lord. Sing a song to the Lord. So James invites us, if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing. That's on an individual basis. But then he turns the corner and he says, but there are going to be certain types of suffering 
where we're going to need some corporate help. So we've got prayer and singing individually. Now, prayer for the sick corporately. So look with me as we, as we look at verses 14 through 16. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, I, I want us to kind of walk through this section because there's a, there's a number of things that we need to think about. Number one, that there are certain times when we need a special request for prayer from the elders, right? He says, is anyone among you sick? Now, this word translated sick is an interesting word in the New Testament. Most words have more than one meaning, like the word trunk, right? Five different meanings. But this word sometimes is just translated weak, right? This is the word that Paul uses when he says, God gave me grace so that when I am weak, then I'm strong. It wasn't like he's going, <coughs> he was just weak. Other times it's just translated sick. The word itself has that range of meanings. Now, what makes it complex here is, what is James saying here? Is he talking about people who are experiencing spiritual times of weakness, or is he talking about people who are experiencing physical times of sickness? And that's a tough call, and I would probably suspect that it might imply both, but I think probably more so here, he's talking about people who are experiencing physical illness, okay? Is anyone among you sick? Because this person appears to be laid out in bed, right? They're that sick. Now, the whole concept of sickness is an interesting subject in the Bible because we know that ultimately sickness is from the curse. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, at that point, they became corrupt in their disposition and God cursed the earth and we're in a corruptible flesh. And so all of us get sick, okay? Now, the question is, what is the connection between sin and sickness. Technically, we all get sick because of sin, right? But it may or may not be due to some personal sin. So in the first century in Jesus' day, they had this strong one-to-one -one correspondence. If you had a handicapped child, it was because somebody sinned, right? So, so when they saw a blind man, the disciples are walking with Jesus, and they said, John chapter 9, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus is like, we got to get this cleared up here. It's not, it's not the only reason people have sickness. He said, sometimes it's for the glory of God. Neither this man or his parents sin that, that I'm cursing them. So we need to be careful when people are sick not to assume, oh, it's definitely because of their sins. But on the other hand, we don't want to go to the other extreme and, 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 and forget that sometimes Christians get sick because of their sins. And the Bible teaches that. Now, the, the path is this. We often tell people, God loves you just as you are. But we need to also tell them, he loves you too much to leave you that way. So the Holy Spirit is at work in the heart of Christians to produce holiness. God's number one goal isn't my happiness, it's my holiness. He wants me to be like Jesus. He wants me to walk in the Spirit. 
be in prayer, turn away from sin, confess my sins, serve him. All of us wander from Christ at times. And the first thing the Lord does is he speaks to us. He convicts us. We'll hear the word. The Holy Spirit will, will trouble our souls. But there are times if we, we don't listen and we know that we are ignoring God and we don't want to turn from our sins, he does spank us. And that can include sickness. And the clearest example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul was, was dealing with the Corinthian church and they were way off base in so many things. But one of them that deeply troubled him, he goes, I can't believe what you're doing at the Lord's Supper. They had rich and poor people and the rich people, they would have a meal together, were not sharing their food with the poor brothers in Christ. Ah, they're just slaves. They have... And some others were getting drunk and they were doing this on a regular basis and Paul is incensed at this. He goes, I'm not gonna praise you for this. He says, but for this reason, because of ongoing, deliberate, intentional sin without repentance, many among you are sick and weak and some of you have died, fallen asleep. So we need to have an understanding that there are times that if I don't listen when God speaks, he can give me sickness. Now, careful here. As soon as I see somebody with a sniffle, I shouldn't be like, why there? I figured, I figured. Yeah, they're a big phony. On the other hand, when you get sick, this is what I do, I truly want to check my heart and say, Lord, is there something that I haven't been listening to you? God doesn't play Marco Polo when he disciplines. He doesn't go, I'm over here. Try to figure it out. If God is disciplining you, particularly with sickness, you'll know quickly because this isn't the first time the subject has come up in your soul. You want to read a little bit more about it? Read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. In Psalm 32, David said, when I kept quiet about my sin, God, day and night, your hand was heavy on me and my vitality was drained away like the heat of summer, right? God loves me and when I'm going this way and he's going, come this way, Tom, it isn't going to be fun. But sometimes he heightens it to, to, to physical suffering that's intended to get our attention. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So back then, shepherds, if they had a continual wandering sheep, according to the book, a shepherd looks at the 23rd Psalm, they would break the legs of a little sheep or one leg, then they would carry it till it healed so that that sheep would, would learn from that. And King, King David understood this in Psalm 119. He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. But literally, David prayed in Psalm 51 because he knew God was disciplining him for his ongoing adultery and his murder and lack of repentance. God, let the bones which you have broken be healed. So, when a person is laid out with a, a, a tough sickness, it's not off the table to consider, okay, could this be due to unrepentant sin? But we must never conclude, oh yeah, it clearly is. That's really something that the person has to work through with, with, with some help from godly people in the scriptures. So, having said that, there's four things I want us to, to, to think about here. One, you call for the elders, right? That's the request. And let them pray over him. But now there's some requirements that the elders are told, these are the things that you need to do. Now, last week, we, we ordained Marty as another elder, and we're encouraging you to get to know your elders. They are men of God who have fit the qualifications of godly people, and they're called to be shepherds. Pastors don't have some super special hotline. 
All of the elders are shepherds and pastors. And so you call for them. But now notice what James says they should do. Number one, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this whole concept of putting oil on someone has two possible interpretations. Some people, because oil at that time was considered medicinal, are saying, all that's saying is give him his aspirin as well. In other words, if, if oil would be helpful, use it. In, in the story of the prodigal, or not the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, remember the guy that he found beat up, right? It says, he bound him up, anointing his wounds with oil and wine. So some people look at this passage and say, we don't need to use the oil. That's just all they had available. Now it's aspirin or, you know, give him his chemo or whatever. And I'm going, okay, possibly, but I don't think so. The other possibility is that this, this oil had a symbolic significance. Okay, now there's nothing special about this is oil that came from the tears of Jesus or something and it has special power. But, but I think that, that there is a sense in which this oil has a symbolic significance. It's not like, ooh, it's the oil itself, but the practice of anointing with oil. The oil is often connected with the Holy Spirit. They would, they would pour oil on the head of a king. They would anoint him. The very word Christ, Christos, means anointed one. And James act, or John actually refers to the Holy Spirit as the anointing. So, so as elders at Riverstone, we literally do have oil, and we anoint the person's forehead, and we pray over them. So the requirement, number one, is that they pray over him, and they anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, notice, though, then he says, and then the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who was sick. So I want to point out a couple of things here. First of all, bear in mind that people tend to take the Bible and then go beyond it and add tradition. Okay, so some of you may be with us from a Catholic church or a Catholic background, and we're delighted to have you here. We welcome you to come and learn the Bible as we read verse by verse and, and have discussions about Scripture. But, but what you will find is many of the beliefs from the Roman Catholic tradition are based in the tradition of what the popes taught, and sometimes they're not going to line up with what the scriptures teach. And, and, and the Catholic Church is aware of that, and, and their statement is, hey, tradition is, is what we follow. The reason I bring all that up is some of you may have heard of what, what the Catholic Church teaches as a sacrament called extreme unction, Okay. Extreme unction is a ceremony that the Catholic Church, and you can read about it in the Catholic uh, doctrines, especially in the Council of Trent, in which they have given special authority to a priest to come to a person particularly near death and to anoint them. And sometimes, you know, when a Catholic person experiences a tragedy, you know, you've got to get the priest there to do extreme action, unction. So this sacrament has the purpose of removing any remnant of sin. That's their view. I don't agree with that, but, but I want you to understand why they do that. I don't think that's what this is talking about. I think this is talking about elders coming and praying over someone. Now, notice it says the prayer of faith. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Now, I want to bring this up, first of all, to you elders, Okay? or men who have a desire to be elders, which is a good thing. The Bible says, if any man desires to be an elder, that's a good thing. 
But we are called, men, to pray believing God, to not waste oxygen, to not go through the motions. James said to us in chapter 1, when you ask God for something, you must ask in faith without any doubting. Otherwise, you will receive nothing from the Lord, being double-minded. So there is a sense in which we need to be firm in our faith, believing God that what we're praying for, that he will accomplish. There are a lot of prayers that are a waste of good oxygen. And God gives us examples in the book of Acts. There's a very humorous one in Acts chapter 12. Peter is thrown in prison. James has already been martyred. They're planning to kill Peter. Acts chapter 12 says, and the church was fervently praying for him. They were gathered in in a home praying for Peter's release. The Lord sends an angel and, and, and delivers Peter from the prison and he comes walking out and his initial instinct is, let me go to the home where the believers meet. And he knocks on the door during the prayer meeting. And the servant goes to answer the door and she sees it's Peter. And she runs back to the prayer meeting and she says, Peter's at the door. And they're going, he can't be at the door. He's in jail. Let us get back to praying. It's hysterical, but it's true. And there are times we ask God for something and we don't have any sense that he's going to do that more than the cow's going to jump over the moon. We need to be challenged to pray in faith. But I want to qualify something here is there is what I would consider a false teaching in regards to prayer when it comes to a a subject of what's called prosperity theology, and that is this, that God always heals if you pray in faith. Therefore, if you don't pray in faith, and if the person doesn't get healed, it's because you didn't pray in faith. That's it. It's their fault or your fault. It's not God's fault. And what they fail to recognize that praying in faith, true biblical praying in faith, has an understanding that there are times when God's sovereignty will overrule our request. Now, I say this for this reason, because we've prayed over and anointed people, and they haven't always been healed. Sometimes they have. But it's not necessarily because we didn't offer our prayer in faith. So I want you to have a balance here, okay? When you pray in faith and you ask God to do something, you believe he's going to do it. But you also hold that open hand that says, Lord, but for some sovereign reason, if this isn't your will, then help us to accept that. Two examples. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Father, and he in agony prayed that God would not allow him to have to go to the cross. Let this cup pass from me. Not for a moment would I say, well, he died, so I guess he didn't pray in faith. Of course he prayed in faith, but he said, nevertheless, not your will, my will, but yours be done. So what happens is people go to extremes. So I have a friend, a very godly man. He has had a significant part in my life. But if you were to ask him, hey, could you pray for my grandmom? She's dying. He would say, well, I'm not going to pray for her healing. What? Why not? Because I don't know whether that's God's will. So I'm just going to pray for God's will. I'd be like, never mind, don't, I'll ask somebody else. Because I totally disagree with that. The Bible teaches we should pray for healing, right? You're like, well, how do I know whether it's God's will? You don't have to know whether it's God's will. You pray for healing. Jesus didn't go, I don't even know to pray whether I should go to the cross. Please, God, if it's possible. I mean, it just makes sense to go, I'm suffering. Lord, heal us. Speak the word. Send your word of healing. But we hold that loosely saying there may be times and for exceptional reasons when Paul prayed that God would heal his thorn in the flesh. 
The Lord Jesus said, no. He said, but my grace will be sufficient for you. My power will be perfected in weakness. So when you hear these men on television saying, hey, listen, just name it and claim it. Send me 20 bucks. I'll send you this cloth. You'll get well. And if you don't, it's your fault. Go, listen, that is a twisting of Scripture. I have to compare Scripture with Scripture. Yes, God does answer prayer. Yes, he does heal. Yes, we should pray expectingly and believingly. But a prayer offered in faith also has an understanding. It's not like a, a loop out, but an understanding that God's sovereign. This is very important. I knew a dear sister who, who had cancer. It wasn't from this church. And she would say to me, but praise the Lord, I know he's going to heal me. God promised. And she died. And I think she died disillusioned with God. And the problem was she misunderstood God. He never promised to heal everybody all the time. And so don't grab a promise and say, there, there can be no exceptions. Ephesians 6.4 says to children, obey your parents that it may go well with you and you may live long on the earth. But does that mean then that any child who doesn't live long on the earth, it must be because they didn't obey their parents? You mean there might be a child who obeys their parents and they might not live long on the earth? Yes. Did God not keep his word? So understand that sometimes in the sovereign purposes of God, he doesn't heal everybody. But if I had to guess, we are on the other extreme. We don't expect much from God. We're not there, them charismatics. And I'm going, what are you talking about? Pray for healing. Believe God for healing. Expect miracles. And I personally believe that God still does give individuals the gift of healing. Now, the problem with that is people are like, then why don't they empty the hospitals? And I'm going, wait a minute. I have the gift of evangelism. Why doesn't every person I witness to get saved, right? But there are some people that seem to have a, an, an unusual capacity to pray over someone. It doesn't mean they get healed all the time, but I've seen it. And you go, well, don't base your experience on what... Listen, you can have a different view on whether the, the gift of healing is there, but let me say this. I hope you don't have a different view on this, that God heals people through prayer. Please say amen to that. Well, I'm glad both of you do. Lord, help me. Now, so, that's what the elders are required to do. What will the results be if they pray and anoint? Look what Paul says, or James says. He goes, number one, the Lord will restore the one who is sick. Now, that word's interesting. That's the word that's normally translated in the New Testament, save. It's the same word that says, whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. So, some people translate this. The Lord will save the one who's sick. Save his soul. And I'm going, no, I don't think that's what that means here. It can also mean restore to health, deliver. So I think he's simply saying, frequently through prayers of faith, God will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And I, and I often think about this as I see people sometimes getting a death sentence and wanting to live longer. And I think to myself, why? Well, because... I'm not ready to go. Why? Because I'm, I'm with you 100%. Ask God to extend your life. But make sure it's for this reason. When the Lord Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, it says, and he raised her up, and immediately she began serving him. It's not so you can enjoy 10 more years of shuffleboard down in Florida at retirement. And I'm not opposed to, to it. You know, well, 
I'm not even going to go there. We talked about retirement. You don't retire from serving the Lord. So ask God to heal you. Ask God to raise you up. Ask God to raise others up that we might extend our service for Christ. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord because they rest from their labor. So if you want to have a, an extension, make sure it's for the glory of serving Christ and advancing the gospel. Now, I get it. If I had a chance right now, Lord said, you want to come home? I'd be like, no, I, I want to preach Christ. I, and I love my grandkids, and I want to pour into them. And, and I'm praying night and day because my son-in-law doesn't have a job. He lost his job. And I'm saying, God, don't move them so I can pour into these children. It's not like God doesn't want us to, to love life or love our loved ones. But the Lord raises them up. And then notice what it says. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now that's, wait, hang on. Whoa. How do you get your sins forgiven? Mark this down and, and stitch this one on your soul. No man can forgive your sins. No prayers can forgive your sins. No priest can forgive your sins. No pope can forgive your sins. No pastor can forgive your sins. The Bible says only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is God. And when he said, your sins are forgiven, they said, only God can forgive sins. And under his breath, I think he muttered, I didn't stutter. <laughs> he is God, and Jesus is the only one that forgives your sins. And there's only one way he forgives your sins. It's through your personal repentance and faith in Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn your forgiveness. You don't need to do extreme unction. You don't need to get baptized. Forgiveness of sins is a gift of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. He doesn't forgive me or you because I deserve it. He forgives me because he paid for it. He shed his blood on the cross. And when he hung on the cross, he didn't say, I'll split it with you and you do purgatory. He said, it is finished. And one of the beautiful things about true Christianity, Jesus said, go and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What could be better than that? Offer me to, to, to be the president or a brain surgeon. I'm, what for? So I can extend somebody's life for 20 years? I could preach Christ, crucified, risen, and offer the forgiveness of sins. I'm glad for brain surgeons. I'm hoping to get into lobotomy one of these days. But in the meantime, there's nothing greater that we can extend to our children the gospel message and say, Jesus can forgive your sins. So don't misunderstand this passage. A person's sins aren't forgiven because someone else prayed for them. The implication here is that they repented and confessed their sins. So as a result of that, the next point is that James says, let me make a reflection on corporate prayer and confession. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effectual prayers of a righteous man could accomplish much. You go, Tom, wait a minute. You're contradicting yourself. I thought I could just have Jesus forgive my sins. Yes. Well, what's James doing here? He is telling us that there are times where we need to confess our sins to someone else. Okay? And so this service is going to go a little longer this morning, but we're going to start with Margie, and we're just going to work our way around. I want each of you to confess all your sins. Okay? That's the last thing he means by that. I had a brother once in a church I pastored. He's like, why don't we just do that every Sunday? I'm going, you, you misunderstand that. This is not saying that every time Christians gather, every Christian needs to get up and blabber out their sins to everybody. But what it is saying is this. You and I need to be accountable. You and I need to be real. 
You and I need to be vulnerable. And so if I ask you how things are going or what you want me to pray for, and all you have me praying for is Uncle Joe's phlebitis, Aunt Betty's gingivitis, and Joe's diverticulitis, let's, let's get past that, okay? The Bible says, lest any of our hearts be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, let's exhort one another. So I hope that you have people that are mature in Christ and that you can share what's really happening in your life, your deep secrets, and you can ask them to pray for you. Pastor Bob and I meet every week, and we get real, and we talk, and it's embarrassing, right? We meet for two hours, and on the first service, I thought Bob was in there, so I said, usually that's how long it takes Bob to confess his sins. I'm like, Bob, I really got to go. He is here this time, and obviously... So I got clearance on this one. So, but the point is, we don't spend two hours confessing our sins, but we really, hey, what's going on? You know, our pastor's allowed to say, I'm struggling with lust. Ew, they do that? Stop it. Right? Or, man, I have a, I, I'm, I'm in a bad place right now. I'm in a dark place. Are we allowed to say that? I know our wives always wonder, what are they talking about? Right? <laughs> Same thing you wives talk about when you get together, right? So, so, so sometimes we'll say, hey, man, pray for me. I was mean to my wife, or, or we had a little, you know, we, be real with somebody, right? So James says, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. I say this all the time, and I mean it. A church is a hospital. If you're fine all the time, you're either lying or you're disconnected. You're offline. How can you be fine all the time? Do you not struggle with sin? Hebrews chapter 12 says, none of us have come to the point of shedding blood in our struggle against sin. He said that to them and us. I don't think anybody here has been beaten to bloodiness because of Christ. So it's okay to go, listen, I need to be on the gurney. I need to be real. I need people to pray for me. It's scary because people don't wake up and walk away from God. It's subtle, right? And it starts with a secret life and a withdrawing and a lack of vulnerability. And so James says, listen, confess to one another, pray for one another, develop community so that you can be real and talk about the struggles in your marriage or your personal struggles with fear and anxiety and insecurity and doubts. And I only, would I be allowed to say, is this any of that stuff real? What if there isn't a God? You think you're the first one that's ever thought that? We're not gonna throw you under the bus if you go, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm attracted to the same sex. You're not the first person who struggled with that. You say, I often think about taking my life. You're not the first Christian that ever thought about that. So we need to create a community of honesty and, and prayerfulness and, and repentance and, and forgiveness and, and, and propping each other up. What a wonderful thing. And then he gives this wonderful promise as he reflects James is like, think about the strength of prayer. Let me just make some comments. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call on Elijah. But look what he says. He says, the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous, or the effectual prayers of a righteous man can accomplish much. Prayer, God uses Jesus is Lord. All authority belongs to him. But if you want to get some of that authority from heaven down to earth, it's prayer. And you say, well... Everybody has equal access to God, yes and no. It's not entirely true. 
But it's not because someone's called reverend or they're a pastor that they have a special access to God. But David got it early in Psalm 4 when he said this, the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I cry to him. Wait, what? Yes, when you're walking with Christ, when you're confessing your sins, when you're in the word and applying scripture to your life, your prayer life will be more powerful. The effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man. I don't run to a, a drunk to ask him to pray for me. I run to a man or woman of God, don't you? And so if you want to upgrade your personal prayer life, seek the Lord. Upgrade your godliness. Upgrade your faithfulness and repentance and, and worship and surrender to the Holy Spirit. And you will experience more power, more answers to prayer. Jesus said, as you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask anything that you want. And so James says, prayer is strong and powerful. And then to give us an example, he says, think of Elijah. Look at verse 17. He was a man with a nature like ours. I think sometimes we read about Christians who are like, well, they were one of those, you know, superheroes. Like, like Christianity has superheroes. Like they were just born that way. No, Elijah was a man just like us. But he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it didn't rain for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced his fruit. James going, let me just remind you of the power of prayer. Elijah is no different from you and me. And look what this dear man did. But I want to point something out here that, that's worth thinking about. When you read that story, Elijah didn't go like this. Dear Lord, let it don't rain. Three and a half years later, let it rain. Right? I think God intentionally answered that prayer in a way that reminds us is it's always too soon to stop praying. Because if you read that story, when it was time for rain, Elijah went up on the mountain with his servant on Mount Carmel, and he said, dear God, he said, let it rain. And he put his head between his legs, and he prayed. And then he said to his servant, go look and see what you see. Now, they stopped watching the news because the forecast was never partly cloudy. It was always, for the last 30 and a half years, bright sunny, right? So his servant went and looked off on the horizon, whichever way the, the, the storms came from. He goes, bright and clear. So he came back and said, it didn't work. And Elijah didn't go, dang. See, I tried praying about it. He just went back to prayer. Father, God, Yahweh, I pray for rain. Servant, go look again. He said, I don't see nothing. Sorry, Elijah. And the third time he put his head... Why did God do it that way? Because the third time when he went, the servant said, I see a little, a little cloud like a little hand, right? And it wasn't long until that little hand became a storm, right? And I think half the time, that cloud's on its way. You just haven't seen it yet, and we quit. We're like, see? And, 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 and then that cloud just goes, all right. You know, God's like, you're not going to trust me? You're not going to believe me? Jesus spoke often of importunity, persistence in prayer. It's always too soon to stop praying. It might be 10, 15, 20 years. I prayed for my hard-hearted spouse. I prayed for my wayward child. Jesus said, we must always pray and never faint. And he told the parable of the widow and the judge and the parable of the buddy knocking on his door. Give me some bread for his persistence. And so we're, we're encouraged here to pray with faith. And not go, it's no use. And then finally, James closes. And he says, listen, we all understand this. 
that some of those who are in our midst have lost their way. And I call them strayers. So we could just keep a little alliteration. Seeing, take strength and strayers. Strayers are not unbelievers. Strayers are people who came into the fold and made their confession, and now they lost their way. Okay? Look what he says. My brothers, if anyone among you strays from the truth. See, you can't stray from the truth until you already have professed allegiance to the truth of the gospel. Okay? Now mark this down, whether it's your children, whether it's your neighbors, your friends, your grandma. There will always be people who will sign up and say, yes, I prayed, I accepted Christ. But that's not the end of the story. We must pray for their perseverance and their persistence and for them to continue to follow Christ. Because not everyone who enters the pool of baptism and says, Jesus is Lord and I've died to my old life and now I'm going to live for him, stays there. And there's two reasons for strayers. Some of those strayers stray because they were never saved. John said, they went out from us, but they were never of us. But some of those strayers stray because they just lost their way. Satan deceived them. And those of you who have kids, if you haven't learned to pray for your kids, that'll get your attention. Dear God, don't let my children stray from the truth. I've been there, done that. I've had a son that was addicted to heroin. And those of you who have had a kid that's lost his way, you get it. Nothing will drive you to prayers and weeping and fasting than to have a child that, that strayed. But what a promise. James says, go after them. Turn them back. Let them know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So for some of you this morning, you've already tried that. You're like, Pastor, what else can I do besides beat them, right? So maybe it's time to stop talking to them about God and talking more to God about them. But for some of you, all you do is talk to God about them, and you never talk to them about God. You need to go get them. Pick up the phone. Where have you been? What's going on? What happened? What a joy when people who have lost their way come back to Christ. So let me close with some thoughts about that. First of all, just real quickly, this week ask yourself, what's your story and what's your song? Remember that song, Blessed Assurance? This is my story, this is my song. If you know Jesus, you've got a story. If you don't know Jesus, you're living a fable. But I don't care if you're saved at 7, 17, or 77. If you know Jesus, you've got a story. This is my story. And maybe you've kind of... But you ought to have a song. And if you lost your song, God will give you another song. He'll put a new song in your heart. But you need to get on your knees and draw near and say, Lord, remind me that you saved me, right? And help me to sing. Pray. If you've got nothing else to sing about, you can't go a day without singing about the cross, right? So what is your story? What's your song? And secondly, who are you praying with? You're like, Pastor, I'm used to proper grammar. My fingers were getting tired. I was keeping it. So these are texts. Who are you praying with? Now listen, if you're married and you're both saved and you're not praying with your spouse, help me there, Roy. Okay? Get help. I get it if somebody goes, my spouse won't pray for me. He won't pray with me. She won't pray with me. 
Well, that's the beauty of the corporate body of Christ. Let's, let's move that discussion forward. No, we're secretive. Well, that's part of the problem. So if you can't comfortably pray with your spouse and you're both Christians, let's, let's, let's talk about that. Let's move that forward. Let's pray that God will change that. It doesn't have to be your spouse. You have somebody that they can, you can honestly say, this is how I'm doing. This is what I want you to pray for. I'm struggling with pride or lust or fear or whatever, okay? And then when you pray with people, are you real about your sins? How's things, how are things going with that struggle of yours? Pretty good. Well, what does that mean? Pretty good, right? Whenever I hear pretty good, I'm thinking, well, pretty good is kind of like could be pretty bad and pretty good. So one of the reasons why somebody said, oh, I don't think Christians want to share their sins because they're embarrassed. And I said, I think another reason is because they don't want to be held accountable. Because if I tell somebody what I'm struggling with, they're going to ask me next week, how are you doing with that? I don't want to stop that. What can't God do for you through prayer? Not what can he do. What can he do? What can't God do for you through prayer? So this, I find this is encouraging, right? You pray for somebody to get saved, somebody to come back to the Lord. Some healing. We've got three people I know of that have bad cancer in our church and we're praying over them. Don't stop praying for a miracle. What can't God do? And then ask yourself, what strayers are you seeking? You're like, yeah, pastor, you and those elders better. I, I know somebody hasn't been here for t- six months. We'll call them and pray for them. And lastly, are you lost and found? If you're not saved, you're lost. You don't understand why we're saying, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Come to Jesus. We want to help you. Come and talk to us. I beg you. I pray all week long, Lord, bring these people to Christ. I know some of you just sit there and you listen, and you have not come to Christ, and I'm praying for God to open your eyes that you might know what it means to be saved. But the problem is some people who have found then lost their way. You're saved. You've just strayed from the truth. And sometimes it's a big secret. Nobody else knows it because you're here every Sunday. So I urge you, if you've lost your way, there's no better time to come back to Jesus than now. If you're far from the Lord, he didn't move. Remember James chapter 4? Humble yourselves, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Come back to Jesus. Leave whatever it is. Oh, I don't know about this. I don't Turn to him and pray for one another. And let's pray this holiday season that many more people will either find their way to Christ for the first time or find their way back to Christ in answer to prayer. Amen? Amen. Father, thanks for your word. May you press it home to our hearts. And I particularly pray that many, more men and women, boys and girls, will give their lives to Christ, and those who are deeply struggling will find comfort and refuge and encouragement. May every parent be strengthened. May every husband and wife be able to pray better. And may you, Lord, bring healing to our church and upgrade the prayers of Riverstone Church for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you. Sorry for going so long. I hope you have a great day.